So we finished up 2 Corinthians last week, and we're starting James. And for the next six, six weeks, we're going to be walking through the book of James. And it's really important for us to not divorce what we're getting ready to hear in James from 2 Corinthians. It's really easy to say, okay, this letter dealt with this. This letter is going to deal with this. When in fact, James teaches us to do exactly what Paul ended his letter to the Corinthians in saying, examine yourselves, test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. And so James comes to you and to me, and he says, this is how you are to test yourself, to see whether you're in the faith. See, too many of us assume that we're already walking with God, that we've already made a decision at some point. And it's really easy to assume that I got this. And yet James is coming to you and to me and saying, slow down. Slow down and consider your life. Consider that you may not have it all together. And really, honestly, in the deep recesses of your, of your life and when you're by yourself, don't you know that? Don't you know that you don't have your stuff together? And so James says, brothers and sisters, what my brother Paul was saying, I want you to consider. Examine your lives. Because the world itself, the way that we view the world, and that's what James is going to teach us, how to look at the world, a lot of times our glasses get foggy or they get muddy, don't they? And so James provides a little cloth to clean off our glasses so that we can see the world as God sees it. And I think over these next few weeks that God in His kindness, I'm praying that we would slow down ourselves and evaluate our lives as opposed to just moving on with the next thing. So let's look at this. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant or slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just stop right there just for a moment. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you remember, James... Who's the, who's the author of this letter, is the brother of Jesus. James is the brother of Jesus. And if you remember in the Gospels, Jesus' brothers come to him and say, Hey man, you need to kind of relax a little bit. You aren't all that you think you are. And yet something very cataclysmic happened in James' understanding for him to be able to say, I am a slave of my brother, Jesus. In fact, that's pretty miraculous. I have a brother... And something miraculous needs to happen for you to say, I'm a slave of my brother. I mean, that, that right there is a great apology for the Christian faith. That, that James, who was a brother of this man, was willing to say, hey, I'm going to lay down everything I have for my brother in a quite literal way. And I'm going to die for the things that my brother preached about. And so James starts his letter by saying, I'm not just the brother of Jesus, I am the slave of this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so let that sink in just a little bit. And so James is challenging us with this, this idea that something radical has just happened. For one brother to consider another brother his master and his Lord. And so this letter was probably written around 45 A.D., which makes it the earliest Christian document that we have. It was written probably 45 to 50 by James, the brother of Jesus. And so James says, he continues on in the second half of verse 1, 
James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. More than likely, this letter was written to Jewish Christians who were dispersed all over throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, if you look in Acts chapter 11, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. You remember Stephen was stoned, and then there was this great scattering. And so James is writing to these Jewish Christians who are being persecuted because they are Christians. And so those who were scattered because of the persecution traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And so these Jewish Christians, like the Jews during the Babylonian exile, left their kindred, left their family, left all of that that's familiar to them. And they also went into exile. They were scattered throughout the Roman Empire into a people that were unfamiliar to them, into a language that they didn't know. And so James gets right to the point, doesn't he? He doesn't have any extended long list of greetings. He just says, greetings. And he gets right to the chase because he knows that these Jewish Christians in the dispersion who are spread out, who are indeed experiencing persecution, need a word from him. And so he goes on with verses 2 through 11. And these, these, these verses right here introduce three themes to us. Three themes that will be the themes throughout the whole message of James. And so you'll probably want to write these down. So, And these three themes are also going to form the outline for the message today. Verses 2 through 4, trials. Verses 5 through 8, wisdom. Verses 9 through 11, wealth. You see, to fill this out a bit, a bit more, each of these themes challenge, challenge us to get a God's perspective of how we are to view the world. Trials. Wisdom. What is true wisdom? And then wealth. And so... It's very easy if our brothers and sisters who are undergoing persecution, who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, if they were easily swept aside to forget that trials, what they are supposed to produce, and then what wealth is supposed to be used for, and then what true wisdom is, then you and I who live in a pretty posh country, we, we also need to heed what God is saying to us through James. We shouldn't take it for granted that those who are suffering had the same struggles that we do, and if we're honest with ourselves... We, we have every single day. But as it forms the outline of our message of trials, wisdom, and wealth, I'm actually going to work backwards. I'm going to actually work backwards. I'm going to start with the third point and work its way back because that's how the letter unfolds itself. So if you would see trials, wisdom, wealth, and then James is going to come back from this point. He's going to start talking about wealth in chapter 2, then he's going to talk about wisdom in chapters 3 and the beginning of 4, then he's going to talk about, um, he's going to talk about uh, trials at the end of our book together. So that's how we're going to follow this. We're going to start with the last few verses and then come backwards because I think hopefully that will help us in understanding how this whole book lays out. So again, trials, wisdom, wealth, but we're going to do wealth, wisdom, trials, okay? So that's how we're going to work our way back through this passage. So Point number one, wealth is a tool, not a possession. Wealth is a tool, not a possession. Verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, 
he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This letter, this short five-chapter letter, is in the genre of what's called wisdom literature. So like Proverbs. So it's, it, it's going to be very difficult, honestly, to preach everything that's in James because he, just like Proverbs, has these really short assertions. And you can't, it's not like a Pauline letter where everything flows together. He's just like, boom, boom, boom. And so that's, that's how James is writing his letter, very much like Proverbs. But James is also drawing on imagery from the Psalms. He's drawing on imagery from the Psalms, and in fact, in each one of these points that we're looking at, I'm going to reference a psalm. Because it's not just Proverbs and wisdom literature, it's also a psalm that that James is singing, as it were, and he's reminding them that their faith is supposed to be a, a singing faith. And then James's theology is informed by his brother, particularly on the Sermon on the Mount. So you have these three threads that are weaved throughout James, and that's why... I wish that we had so much time to be able to look at how James builds his argument because there, there's so much beauty in this. And he's assuming, again, he's talking to Jewish Christians, he's assuming a good knowledge of the Bible. And so there's allusions throughout the book of James. And so like Proverbs, James is going to, he's going to paint the picture with really broad brushstrokes. And so what he's saying is that these things are typically true. Not universally true. There's, in other words, there's, there's going to be an exception to these rules. Just like in Proverbs, right? In Proverbs, you have these big statements. If you do this, then this will happen. In the same way, James is using that same genre of wisdom literature to, to say, hey, I want to make a point here, so I'm going to paint with a huge, broad brushstroke. And so like the fool and the wise of Proverbs, that's what James is doing right here, contrasting the rich and the poor. You see that? He's not saying that every rich person is a problem. No, he's, he's trying to make a point that typically and specifically, these ones, the, the ones that James is talking to, the reason why they are remaining wealthy is because they're taking advantage of the poor. They're using their wealth to make themselves more comfortable. They're using their wealth as self-referencing as opposed as a tool to serve other people. And so that's what James is saying, that wealth is not a bad thing. How you use wealth tells everyone what you value. And so that's what James is trying to tell us. He's, he's trying to tell us that wealth is a tool, not a possession. And so James reminds us that just like the grass of Psalm 102, you might want to write that down, Psalm 102, our days are so short. And you and I can easily forget that we will die. Every single one in this room will die. And that's not an exceptionally morbid thought. It's actually something that throughout history that people have, have tried to wrap their heads around. In fact, in Moses, in Psalm 90, he says, Help us to number our days. Why? So that we might get a heart of understanding. So that we might know how we are to live in this world. That when you and I consider that just like King Solomon, in all of his pomp, all of his glory... King Solomon is dead. And not only is King Solomon dead, but the person that hoisted him up on their sho- on his shoulders and the one that, that took care of him and cleaned his shoes and, and pressed his clothes, his slaves are also in the ground being eaten by worms. And you and I, too, will be eaten by worms. And if you consider Alexander the Great, 
all of the Caesars in all the history, if you consider King Louis of, of uh, France, if you consider the Rockefellers, if you consider all of these people who had great insurmountable wealth, their end is just like your and my end. They're not exempt from the grass withering and the worms eating. In fact, in Psalm 49, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. So, friends, don't let riches fool you. Sure, it looks like millionaires and billionaires run the world. And for a certain period of time, they may run the world. But all of us, every single one of us, have to come underneath the law of God's rule. That every single one of us, every king, every billionaire, every poor person, everyone in need, death levels us all. And we would do well to consider that. How you use your wealth tells you everything that you need to know about your life. See, accumulating wealth for yourself is foolish. But using wealth as a tool in the service of other people is wise. And so, let's look at our second point. What is wisdom? What does it mean to be a wise person? True wisdom is faith in God. True wisdom is faith in God. Look at verses 5 and five through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so James says, if you lack wisdom. Why doesn't he say, if you lack faith, ask God? He says, if you lack wisdom. See, wisdom is simply living in the world as God intended. It's to cut along the grain of life instead of to cut against the grain of life. That's what true wisdom is, that God says, I've created the world for you to live in, and you need to understand how you are to live in that world. And so wisdom, essentially, is faith incarnate. Wisdom is simply faith with flesh on it. That's what it means to be wise. But at its foundation, living rightly in the world is always in reference to God. The beginning of wisdom, what is it? The fear of God, Psalm 111. All life is to be lived in relationship to God. And so you cannot be wise unless you first understand who you live underneath. Who you live underneath. So everything about us, your job, your relationships, your conversations, every decision you make, all these are meant to be lived underneath God's watchful eye. And that may scare you a little bit. Because some of us have a really bad understanding of who God is. We think that he's a tyrant, that he's kind of coming after us, and that he's just waiting for you and me to mess it up. And then he's going to hit us with a lightning bolt. But we see here that that is not the kind of God that James is espousing at all. See, how we, lives, how, how we live shows what we truly believe. 
How we live shows what we truly believe. Do you live in fear of the future? Are you constantly worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow or the next week or the next month or the next year? Do you live with regret from the past? Man, if I wouldn't have said that, if I wouldn't have done that, things would have been a lot better. Or maybe you're just really frustrated with how right now looks for you. Man, life is not going the way I planned. And so you're just frustrated. And so are you wavering in your faith? Or are you lacking in wisdom this morning? See, the glorious fact is that you and I don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to get our stuff together. And so maybe you're tired this morning. Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're angry that things right now in your life are not going as you want them to go. All that's necessary is for you to ask. Is, you, is for you to seek the Lord's face. And see, this isn't just a general asking. Man, I wish things were better. Man, I wish life was a lot different. This is not just some kind of vain wishing and, and, and hope that you throw out there. No, again, wisdom is living underneath God's rule. It's approaching a God who is generous. He's not holding back anything from you. saying, if you want something, just ask me. What father... To use Jesus' words, what father would give his son a snake if he asked for a fish? What father would give his son a rock when he asked for a piece of bread? And so James is saying, your heavenly father is generous. Ask him. In fact, literally, James is saying, let him ask the giving God. Let this person who is lacking wisdom, let him ask this God who from his very nature is generous. He wants to give you your heart's desire insofar that it's focused on him, and we're going to look at that. See, when you and I approach God, we are first acknowledging that we believe in his character, that he is who he says he is. That he's not only a giving God, but that he has the resources that we need to accomplish what we want. We recognize that he is good, for one, and that he's sufficient. The other. That not only is he desiring to give us these good gifts, but he in fact has all of these things that he can give us. And we'll look at that next week um, in the second half of chapter 1. But there's a condition to the asking. We must not be double-minded or doubting. Again, I think it'd probably be good to consider the literal meaning of this this double-mindedness is to literally be double-souled. To have your soul going in two different directions. And then this idea of doubting literally means to be discriminating. It's the same term that, that James uses in chapter 2, verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions? Have you not then discriminated about who you're going to love and who you're not going to love? That we'll look at in two weeks. And so, how does this relate to asking God and for God giving us things? Instead of being frustrated that God's not giving me what I want. You see, we're double-souled. Our soul goes one way or the other way. Why and how? When we're longing for things of this world and we're not seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And so James is saying, unify your heart. But before that, ask God to unify your heart. Because in and of yourself, you're going to always be double-souled, double-minded, constantly being having your foot in both ways, hedging your bets and saying, maybe God said this, but just in case he did, and I'm going to do this. 
And so James says, throw yourself wholly on the mercy of God. He can carry you. Be one soul. Be one-minded. And don't be double-souled. Don't be double-minded about this. God is not lacking in his ability to give you what you need. And then second, how do we make distinctions or how do we discriminate? That's really a strange way of saying it. And, and in fact, our translation that we read from uh, says doubting because I think it would probably be really hard for us to wrap our minds around this idea of discriminating. Why are we not supposed to be discriminating or doubting? We discriminate in our asking when we presume to know what God will or will not answer. God, I really want this to happen, but I don't think he'll want me to have that, or I don't think he'll want me to do that, so I'm not going to do that. That's what it, that's what it means to doubt. I'm going to, I'm going to go to, I, I need to go to God, but he doesn't want to hear me. I've messed up time and time again, and so he's not going to listen to me. So you're discriminating against who you know God to be. Maybe before you go to God in prayer and ask him, you say, man, I just got to get my stuff together, and then I'll go to God. God's not asking you to parse out your life and then go to him. He's saying, just throw yourself upon me and I'll carry you. Or we're discriminating and thinking that God is not good to give us what we're asking him. We're discriminating against God by saying, God, I don't think you really want good things for me. No good thing do you withhold? I think you probably do. And so we judge and incriminate and discriminate against God when we don't approach him as a loving father who will give you all things, indeed the whole kingdom. And in fact, we'll see next week that every good and perfect gift is from who? God. God, the father of lights, the one who is generous to you and to me. But embedded in all of this is this caveat, isn't it? It's not just the condition but this caveat is that God is good and able and generous. And you and I have to come to the point where we trust him. You and I can know all these things. And in fact, many of us in this room, I, I know most of us in this room very well. And most of us would say, yeah, I believe that God's good and generous. But then when you look at your life, you think, but I don't think so. You look at the actual incarnated faith. And you and I are struggling to believe that God is good and generous and kind. If we're honest with ourselves, we think that he's a tyrant. And that he's just out to get us and out to teach us a lesson. But here in this passage in James, we see that God is generous. And he's good. And he's sufficient to meet all of your needs. But maybe your needs need to be recalibrated. Maybe your wants need to be refocused. The glasses need to be cleaned just a little bit. And so you and I, in trusting him, in essence have to come to the same place that our Lord and Savior Jesus came to in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he say? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, yours be done. And so God in his mercy is saying, I want you to loosen your grip of what you think you need and of what you think you really want. I want you to have your hands freed off of that that's providing slavery for you and to be yoked to me to know that I am good and generous and I will give you what you need. 
You may not understand it right now. And so when we loosen our grip on these things that we think that we need to have, then we can have more of God. Then our, our grip is opened up and saying, God, I, at the end of the day, what I want in seeking that job or that promotion or that relationship or any number of things, Lord, what I really want is more of you. And so that leads, to, leads us to our last point. Joy in trials. Joy because of trials. Verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When someone's in a trial in a courtroom, what's happening? You've got a prosecution that's trying to make the case to a jury that this person is capable of committing this crime. And then you have the defense who mounts up evidence to say this person is not capable of committing this crime. Because it's not just the opportunity, but it's also the motive, right? If you're, if you're a lawyer, you kind of know that you need to be able to not only show that this person had opportunity, but they also had a motive to committing this crime. And at, at the bottom, rock bottom level, what's happening in a courtroom is looking at somebody's character, and saying, this person is not only capable, but they did it. And so just like a jeweler that we looked at last week of examining ourselves, so James is saying the same thing. Take your life to the jeweler and let the fire of God test you. Let the fire of God show what is inside of you to burn out the impurities in your soul. You see this in verses 3 and 4? The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, it's not just getting through the trial. That's not what God's after. God's not just after making your life comfortable and easy. God's not after just getting you through the valley. What he's after is trying you and burning out the junk in your life. God wants to produce in you steadfastness, or as the King James says, worketh patience. God is trying to work in you patience. And so all of these trials are meant to show what is inside of you. Has God worked that patience, that steadfastness, that, that gripping on Him when all else is failing? That's what God is after. He's after you. He's not after your comfort. He's not after everything going well for you. Because without the trials, what? Your maturity in Christ would never take effect. You see that? Let steadfastness have its full effect or have its goal, its purpose. Steadfastness' purpose is that what? That you may be perfect, complete, mature. Without the trials, you will never be what God intended you to be. If you are running to comfort and getting frustrated when things aren't going well, God's whispering to you, come to me and go through it because I want to burn that junk out of you. I want to burn it out of you. And so then Paul, or I'm sorry, uh, James revisits this at the end of our passage, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man, you should be thinking, blessed, blessed, how Jesus was talking about this on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed is the man who, and so, um, blessed is the man who remains steadfast 
under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, talking about salvation, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, here, listen to this, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so what is James teaching us? That, yes, sure there are trials outside of us. Sure there are temptations outside of us. And we'll consider this at the end of James in chapter 5. But we see the root of all of these difficulties that Paul's, I mean, James is talking about is within us. All of these difficulties are within us. And so like Adam, what do we do when things don't go the way we want? We shift blame. We look for someone to be the scapegoat, just like our father Adam. And like a pregnant woman, right? This is the image that James has given us. Like a pregnant woman who cares for and protects the baby in her womb, so also we do the same thing with our priorities and our preferences, with our desire, our desire, what do you really want? Not the Sunday school answer, but what do you really want? That's the question that James is putting on you and on me. Is like, friend, what do you want in life? Why are you so upset? Why are you so frustrated in this trial, in this temptation? You see, we, we take our preferences and we take our things that we really love... And we protect them, don't we? We guard them. If anybody tries to take my toy away, I get angry and I lash out at them. And not only do we try to protect them like a pregnant woman with a, with a baby in her belly, but what do we do? We then give birth to that in sin. That desire then takes on flesh itself and we see it. And what do we do? We coddle it and we cradle it. And we say, don't touch, don't touch this. Don't touch my preference. Don't touch my priority. Don't touch what I think is valuable to me. But that James is telling us, please, be careful. Don't think that that thing that you think is so valuable is good for you. Because it's going to grow up. And it's going to kill you. And you will die. If you continue to coddle and care for this sin. You see, Jesus... In his Sermon on the Mount, what did he say? The pure in heart, what will happen? The pure in heart, the pure in heart will see God. That's what we're after. That's what we're after. We're after more of seeing who God is. And so he's making us pure in heart so that we will see God one day. And so the trials and difficulties that we experience in life is God's way of taking that Love that we have, that baby that we've conceived from our sin and ripping it out of our hands. And saying, I love you too much to let you coddle that and protect that and keep that for yourself. Because that thing that you think you have to have is going to kill you. It's going to kill you. And so he wants to, to free us from the trivialities of wealth. He wants to free us from self-promotion and self-preservation and constantly trying to make sure that people look at us the way that we want them to look at us. 
And God wants to free our grip on these things so that we can see him and that we can have more of him. So that our hearts might be purified. So that the wombs of our souls might give birth to beauty and truth and goodness. So that we might see God and in seeing him become more like him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us too much to let us coddle and keep sin to ourselves. Every single one of us in here with a moment of reflection will be able to identify one besetting sin that is just having its way with us. Lord, would you come by your spirit and rip that from our hands to show us that you are enough and that in seeking those things that we think we have to have, that in, in pulling that from us, you actually free us from being, for, for, for being able to wrap our arms around you. To be able to give birth to those things which are true and good and beautiful. To know that we were created for more than slavery to things. So Lord, help us to use our wealth as a tool instead of a possession. Lord, help us to see that true wisdom is faith in you. And Lord, that in the midst of all of this, that you can produce joy because of the trials that burn out the impurities in our life. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.